Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Okay, book here to everyone. It's 8.30, about to turn 8.31, so let's start. Again, welcome if you're watching on Facebook. Um, we're going to be on the second chapter of, um, of Shemot, of Exodus. I believe, unless uh, one of you correct me, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, we are kind of halfway through the Rashi's on verse 11. Does everyone seem agree with that? Okay, good. I think that's right. So let's do what we normally do. Um, and I have a note that says we ended in the middle of the Rashi, verse 10, after Menachem. We didn't, I feel like we read verse 11, because I remember discussing the notion of Vayar B'Siv Lotam, but, but we're going to read the verse Ish again anyway. Ish it's been Ish Mitzri, yeah, I think Ish Mitzri, Ish Mitzri I think is the Rashi run, but let's, let's build up some momentum, as it were. Um, so, um, one sec. Okay, so the verse, verse 11, after we had learned um, that he had saved him and named him Moshe, verse 11 is beginning the third Aliyah and Shmo, we're moving right along here. So I'm just distracted as I'm letting people in while I'm talking. Vayahi vayamim hahem. It was during those days, whatever that introductory phrase means, right? It's a, it's a different introductory phrase than vayahi acharei hadvrim after those things. So it's, it's somehow suggesting a during rather than an after of the previous scene. Vayigdal Moshe. Moshe grew. We'll pause there, remind ourselves that we already discussed the fact that he had grown in the previous verse. The previous verse 10 began with Vayigdal Moshe. And this is where Rashi says, no, here he grew in stature. He grew in kind of emotional maturity. He grew in the authority that a Paro was going to give him in the household. Vayetze el echav. He went out to his brothers. We played with that on the shot level. From Moshe, to, to, to this man, Moshe, at that stage of his life, who are his brothers? Right? We because we, we're used to the way we normally understand the story in the Cecil B. DeMille way, he went to see his brothers, the Hebrews, as if he had already realized that they were his brothers. But you could also read the shot that at that time, no, he went out to hang out with his brothers, the taskmasters, and that's when he saw what's happening. It, it's, it's, it's not 100% clear in the verse. It, it, I'll say this, it's beautifully ambiguous who Echav are, except that we have Vayar B'Siv He saw their sufferings. So if the there refers to Echav, then that teaches, teaches after the fact that, he's, that, the, that the Echav referred to his, his Hebrew brothers. And we discussed in Rashi, and I think we already read the Rashi, that Vayar Et, to see with a direct object, is different than Vayar B, to see in, right? Um, and Rashi read that as um, seeing, identifying with, having his heart be filled with um, the sufferings of um, of, of, of his uh, of his folk. Vayar ish mitzri. He saw an Egyptian man. Make ish ivri. I'm gonna. I, I think when we translate this last time, we we translate it as smite. Most places in the Torah where you use the word lahakot, it means a mortal blow, right? Uh, a lot of the laws of um, 
and parshat parshat mishpatim that if you if if you smite someone then you're you off you owe your life in return. I, I the reason why I'm going to tag it is because Rashi is going to play with makeh as if it's not the only way to read it as to smite mortally. So he saw an Egyptian man makeing, smiting or smacking or doing something to an ish ivri, a Hebrew man, me'echav, from his brothers. So again, a return of his brothers. Most of the times we read that as referencing that the Hebrews are Moshe's brothers. That's the verse. We read uh, the first Rosh in the verse, and we're up to ish mitzri. But since it's been two weeks, let's pause here to see if anyone has any kind of comments or uh, questions on the verse or on uh, what's what's hanging out there. Uh, I see Barry's hand, and I see Barbara's hand. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, this is the first time uh, he went out. This is the first mention he went out to his, he didn't know he had brothers. How, how does he know? Okay, that's the first question. And um, and why why is it Ivri uh, Me'ahav? We already know there are his ahav, and he would know he's an Ivri. So why why redundant? Great. So so you're you're raising yet more questions on the verse. Are we supposed to understand this is his first time ever going out to his, his echav, or is this just one of the many times? Why vayetze? We know that vayetze is an evocative word in the in the Torah. Um, it could have been vayelech. It could have been many different verbs. Um, and why the repetition of me'echav? Good. Ex- excellent questions to overlay our conversation. Barbara and then Norm, or Norm and Rachel, I don't know who raised their hand. Well, maybe I'm being redundant because of what Barry just said, but it seems to me that the first brethren in the sentence is not, it has to refer to the brethren, it has to refer to the Hebrews, since when we get to the end of sentence, we know that brethren is referring to the Hebrews. I don't think that there's any chance that he's in the first brethren that he's referring to the brother, the, the, the Egyptian brothers. Uh-huh. Is that, why would the brethren be used twice in one sentence and be used yeah. to different people? Yeah. Um, I'm going to leave it as good questions. Good, que- good questions. Ra- Rashi, Rashi deals with some of this, but not all of it. Um, but, but, but very good questions. Um, Norm. Um, I think about the word makos that it should be clear that stripes don't necessarily mean killing someone. We have a whole tractate about makos that are imposed by, under Torah law, a whole tractate in the Talmud. And so it seems like there must have been the sense that somebody could be whipped even by an Egyptian taskmaster without the intention of killing. Right. Good. So, so that's, that's a helpful, like, pullback from rabbinic Hebrew back into biblical Hebrew to remind us that lehakot does not have to mean to mortally strike, even though it mostly is used that way in the Torah. And that gives space for Rashi's comment to come. Uh, before I move forward, I want to tell you a story. A long, long time ago, I can't even remember how long ago, there was a member of our community named Sharon Grubb. And uh, she's pretty <laughs> active. And, you know, she came to classes. She came to Minion. And uh, years ago, she she decided that she'd had enough of us. But every once in a while, she she parachutes in to say hello. And we want to say a special brucha haba'a to Mohamora, Sharon Grubb, who is with us from Israel. We've missed you, Sharon. And it's so nice to see her punim. Welcome, welcome. Um, okay, good. 
Any other uh, lingering comments before we go on to what Rashi says about Ish Mitzri? Okay. So, uh, Joel, you want to read? Ish Mitzri. Nogash haya mimuna al shotre Yisrael. Um... He was a. So the word is pronounced no gase. It's a sin, not a shin. Um, and uh, the no gase. Anyone remember what, the, what what a no gase is in 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 uh, in Exodus? The no uh, marshal. Yeah. Task, a taskmaster. Right. It's one of the synonyms used for um, the taskmaster that is placed over the Israelites. So. Mm-hmm. So, so Rashi says Ishmitsri, an Egyptian man. Well, well, what kind of Egyptian man? Right? What, 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 when we were going through the verse, one of the questions we didn't ask, which is okay, is who is this guy? And is it important to know who he is? Right? So who is this Egyptian man? Rashi first says, this is a, a taskmaster. Okay. Placed on the police of, the, of Israel. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, he, so the, what, what, what Rashi is kind of laying out here is that there was a hierarchy of authority, um, uh, so, some, somewhat like pre-evocative, frankly, of how uh, the Nazis and other of our tormentors have done it, which is that there have been the uh, oppressors, rep- representatives over us, supervising our own oppressors over us, right, uh, to, to make it even more psychologically unbearable. Right? Think of the ways that with the, in which the, the, the Nazis put up Jews to be responsible over inmates in the camps and things like that. So why he's putting that particular data point in right here, I don't know. I have not figured out a connection between the Mumune al-Shoshay Yisrael appointed over the, 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 the policemen over Israel. It's also possible to read Rashi here as, you know, in, in Hebrew, smichut can be... Um, and, and possessives can be ambiguous. So shotre Yisrael can mean simultaneously those who are policing Israel and the policemen of Israel, meaning the Israelites policemen. It's, it's, it can mean both. So it's possible he means the former, in which case he's just saying that this guy was a supervisor of a supervisor, who was a, a very a person of great authority, or Rashi is somehow suggesting here that there's a system by which um, the Egyptians are supervising the Hebrews who are supervising themselves. Okay. Okay. So he would raise them. It says here the crowing of the rooster. Where did they get that from? Right. So to get, the, get them to work. Right. So he, he would make them stand up as a way of saying, like, rise them, like a uh, rouse them. Mikrot, from the call, like the word likrot, it's interesting that the, uh, the aleph drops out here, but from the call, um, and yes, in rabbinic Hebrew, uh, one of the words for uh, a rooster, in addition to the word that we use, tarnagol, and the word that's used in the opening lines of Birkot HaShachar, asher natan vina, that the rooster there who understands the difference between day and night, there in, in the prayer, the word for rooster is sechvi, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, 
It could also be referred to as the gever, which we think of as mean just meaning a guy, a man. I forgot the derivation as to why gever can also mean rooster, aside maybe just because it's a male, a male chicken. I'm not sure. Okay, um, so he would he would rouse them from the call of the rooster, right first thing in the morning, lim lachatam, in order to go do their work. Now, on its own, this comment of Rashi makes very little sense. Meaning, if it's making little sense to you, that that's proper, because this is a Rashi string where you have to read the Rashis a bunch at a time to understand what he's saying in the previous one. He doesn't complete his thought here, right? Elon? Yeah, I was wondering, like, where did he get the whole concept of the rooster? Is he just... Like, does he make stuff up because it, it, he thinks it enhances the story? Where is, what's that based on? Right. So, as always, he's culling from many, many Midrashim simultaneously, and he's, he's weaving kind of – it's about to get even more elaborate. So the question of where did he get this stuff from is, is going to be even more of a worthy question as we read forward. Um, I don't remember if the, um, if the image of the of, – of the, of the rooster comes directly from um, a rabbinic midrash, or this is Rashi just filling in the gaps. Wh- why it's significant will come in the in the next comment. But wh- where the image comes from, I do not remember. Um, so let's because I want to resolve this because it seems kind of strange hanging out there. Let's read the next Rashi, and um, this is going to be a bit of a not a wild goose chase, but a, b- a bit of a rabbit hole to figure out what Rashi is saying and. I want the question in the back of your mind to be, what did Rashi experience as lacking in the verse? And I guess you could also ask the meta question, or what, what, what did the rabbis who, author, who authored the Midrashim from which Ra, uh, Rashi is culling feel was lacking in the verse, such that this layered, textured story we're about to get, which does not have to be the way you read the verse, is ins- inserted into it. Right? What, what was so plain about the verse Right, midrash can begin either because there's something in the verse that is curious, problematic, missing, or the the verse seems to be too plain. We can't leave it be just that. All right. Um, so let's read the next Rashi, and we'll see how he fills it in. Joel. Okay, Ishivri, striking a man, uh, a Hebrew, malkehu verodehu. Okay, what do those two words mean? Malkehu uh, Berodeo, any sense? Hitting him. Mine says intimidating him. Yeah, so remember what Norm said before that in Mishnaic law and a Talmudic law, you, the, 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 the Arba'im Makod Chatserachad, the 39 lashes that somebody would get for having committed one sin or another. In rabbinic Hebrew, they're those they're they're almost synonyms: makeh mem kafhe and malkot mem lamed kuf. They, they they sound the same, but they're totally different roots. So Rashi translates makeh here. Don't read this makeh to be the type of biblical makeh which leads to death, but the rabbinic makeh, which also is malkot lashes whipping. Okay, so it's not pleasant; it's torturous, but it's not smiting to death. And Rodehu, uh, the, fir- the, the root Reish Dalet or Reish Dalet Hay, you know this or you may know this from way back in, in Breshit, 
when God g- gives us the, the humanity dominion over the animals, other over the animals, uradubahem, you have dominion over them. So you can translate it as intimidate, I suppose. That's adding kind of a midrash to the verb. Uh, I think maybe dominate is more appropriate, right? So he um, he was hitting him, you know, whipping him in a very domineering and oppressive way. Hold on one second. Can I, what's that, Barry? Terrorize. Couldn't hear you. Terrorize. Terrorize. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, let's pause mid-Rashi because I see Marshall has his hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to also translate Radehu as to subjugate him. Subject, right. Subjugate him to his his commands. Yeah. And maybe to like individually subjugate him beyond the extent to which all the Hebrew slaves are already right being subjugated. What's interesting about this image is that our image of the experience of the Hebrew slave under the Egyptian taskmaster is this anyway. They're being whipped and they're being dominated and subjugated. Rashi is saying that somehow this Egyptian man was 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 doing something like specific and extra and worse to this one Egyptian one Hebrew man. Okay. Go ahead. The Shlomit bat Divri Haya. He was the husband of Shlomit, the daughter of Divri. Okay. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Okay. Venatan Enavba and set his eyes upon him, upon her. So who who set his eyes upon whom? The Egyptian uh, wanted her, his wife, so he he beat him. So, so, right. So, sometimes it's helpful to map out this particular Rashi to remember who is who. You've got an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew man. The Hebrew man is the husband of a woman who is known as Shlomit Bat Divri. Shlomit is the the daughter of Divri. We'll get back to her in a second. Whenever we were going to learn about her, she apparently was very beautiful because the Egyptian man said, I want her for myself. Natan enavba. He put his eyes upon her. Okay? Belayla ha'amido. And the night he um, woke him up, v'hotsiyomi beto, and took him out of the house. So pause. Now you understand why Rashi understood, read the previous thing as... Um, what was this man's t- task? This man's task was to go around while it's still nighttime and wake up the Egyptian men, schlep them out of their, sorry, the Israelite men, schlep them out of their beds and, 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 and make them work. So that's actually, in one, one way of looking at the scene is that it's, a, uh, it's, it's an invasive thing, obviously invasive thing. You're knocking on huts or tents and you're grabbing men when they're still sleeping and taking them out of their domiciles to go work there's also something intimate about it like unpleasantly voyeuristically intimate right you are pulling men out of bed you are pulling men out of bed with their wives you are seeing husbands and wives in bed together that engenders all sorts of feelings so according to this midrash this taskmaster whose specific job in the system was to rouse hebrew men comes in the morning or not even yet morning. It's, it's Balila, right? So maybe the, the this this gever, this tarnagol is crowing even before it's morning. To wake up this guy, to take him from his house and seize Shlomit Batibri and says, Hmm, 
I have power. I have authority. Maybe I'll take her for myself. Go ahead. And he came back and went into the house. And went on the... I don't want to use the direct translation. He, he came on his wife. Yeah, right. So this is, So the Egyptian man... Egyptian taskmaster pulls the husband of Shlomit Batibri out of the house, sends him off to work. Now she's alone in the house and she's vulnerable, right? So he goes back into the house and is intimate with her, right? That is indeed the Torah's language for intimacy. Lavo al or lavo el, to, to approach, to come close to, to be with his wife. Okay. Bisvura Shehuba Allah, thinking that he was her husband. Who was thinking that? The wife. Right. So kisvura, the root savar, samech, betresh, means to, to have a thought or a notion. And the, the ah ending means it's her. Like, according to her thinking, kisvura, shehu ba'ala. That, oh, maybe there wasn't a lot of work to do today. We don't have electric lights in our hut. Maybe it's my husband coming back to be in bed with me. Go ahead. The chazar ha'ish davar, and the man came back to his house and saw the or felt the thing. Um, and when the Egyptian saw that he had, that he saw what was going on, he hit him and subjugated him the entire day. Right. So it comes, Rashi comes back at the end to say the reason why I'm reading Make Ish Ivri, not as he killed the Hebrew, but rather as he kind of um, smacked him around and subjugated him all day, is that he's suggesting that this is like an, an ongoing thing that happens, right? So when the Hebrew came back and saw that the taskmaster was lying with his wife, the taskmaster says, this cannot be, I cannot, I cannot accept this. And so the way he, I don't know, the way he prevents um, or the way he reasserts his dominion and control over this Hebrew is to say, listen, your wife is mine and you are mine. I dominate her in the bed. I dominate you in the field. And this is going to happen over and over and over again. By the way, sadly, tragically and ubiquitously, this happens all the time, right, in, in uh, societies and notions of, of slavery or pre-slavery, right, where the subjugation is not only vis-a-vis backbreaking work, but ownership of the body. I own you, and I own your, your person, and I own your relationship with others, right? That, that's the very definition of chattel slavery from, in, in, that the United States sadly and tragically perfected. Um, okay, so see a couple of hands. First, Norm, say say a little bit more about what you wrote in the in the chat, and then um, Larry, Diane, and then Tova. I think in this case, it seems like he got this Israelite, the husband, up early, not after the cockroach, because after the cockroach, lots of men are getting up. He's got to go to more than one house. He's got responsibilities. He's not being paid just to wake up one Israelite. He's got to wake up several, presumably. So I think this probably happened earlier. And that may be why the husband eventually came back. He was assigned to do some task. It took less time than the Egyptian anticipated. So he gets discovered. 
Nice. So you're, you're, you're actually doing a Rashi on Rashi's choice of the word Lila, that, that normally this guy's task was to wake people up at the break of dawn, but he sees Shlomi Batibri, he wants her, so he, he comes even earlier, schleps this guy out of bed even earlier while it's still nighttime, and maybe, maybe there's no work yet to be done, and that's what, why, why the husband comes back and catches them. Nice. And that's why uh, Shlomi uh, doesn't realize it isn't her husband. She thinks, oh, the cock hasn't crowed yet, the guy hasn't come to wake him up yet, Right. Um, this is still my husband, so she's right. docile. Very good. Right. It was not until the morning comes that you realize who you've been spending the night with, right? As in, yeah. in Jacob, Rachel, Leah. Uh, I totally accept that read. Thank you, Norm. That 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 unconfuses me from of why Rashi used the word Lila there. Uh, Tova, Larry, Diane, and then Rick. Uh, well, perhaps to state the obvious, you'd, you'd ask uh, why are they pursuing this drosh? It seems as if they are concerned with the seeming uh, lack of motivation because, as you stated, in their state of servitude, being beaten uh, or uh, abused in that way would have been fairly common. So why coming on them would he suddenly be motivated to actually retaliate? So this is creating a much bigger scenario. Yeah. but it also, I wonder, because when I, still when I read it, though, I, this is a really interesting direction, the Peshat, or the more obvious level, seems to be that, for whatever reason, on that morning, this brutality got to him, and he looked to the left, looked to the right, which Rashi's going to talk about, and uh, to see that nobody uh, is observing him, uh, and then retaliates, which in and of itself is also distressful uh, to, to see motion behaving in that way. So it, I think it's two things. One, why should he get that upset to react? And two, uh, if it's not some deeper scenario, then his behavior is troubling in another way. Yeah. Great. Great, great addition, Tova. Thank you. Uh, Diane Larry. So, Tova basically posed the question I was going to pose. I'm going to ask it a little differently. Why did Rashi, who was living through the Crusades, where um, being beaten or killed for no reason at all was commonplace, why would he feel the need to actually ask this question at all? And I'm going to answer the question, but before I answer the question, I have to ask Rabbi Clickfeld two questions. One is how far down the well, rabbit hole. Before you ask your second question, I'm going to ask you three questions. I want Dan Ryan <laughs> to answer them. How far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? And um, did Rashi assume that his audience had read all the Midrashim and knew them as well as he did? Right. So to your first question, very. To your second question, I assume very little. I assume, and Rashi assumes, that his audience knows Chumash, but doesn't know Yalkut Shimoni and, and, and Shmot Rabba like he does. That's my assumption of his assumption. That doesn't mean that I'm correct. So if, he, if, if his audience or if any of you knew Shmot Rabba, which I don't, except I've read now chapter 1, verse 28, and now I understand perfectly what's going on. I've also read... Um, Vayikra, chapter 24. 
And what's Which going we're gonna, on here, We're going to get to in a second. Okay. Right, right. What's, what's going on here, so first of all, Norm, with all due respect, that's not what the, what, what the Midrash says. It was at daybreak, so it wasn't when it was dark. And this was their custom to do this, um, the taskmasters. So this was probably not a one-off situation, uh, as the rabbi was inferring uh, before. Um, but there's a very long uh, Mishnah here, or Midrash here, I'm sorry, a long paragraph about what this particular taskmaster um, did to um, Shlomit. And all that Rashi is doing is he's citing that because he needs to find, an, he needs to find another reason why Moses would actually want to attack him. At least that's the way that I'm reading it. Um, I'm not going to read the whole um, Midrash, or at least the paragraph, unless the rabbi wants to uh, eventually. But it says very clearly, Moses saw what had happened through the Ruach HaKodesh. So he knew exactly that this taskmaster had raped the wife um, when he was killing him. So he knew exactly what he was, what he was doing. What's really fascinating to me is not only is it connected to Vayikra, which we'll get to in a minute, in terms of Shlomit um, and um, what is his name? The Debris. But it turns out, if I'm reading it correctly, she was actually the wife of Datan. Is that the famous Datan of Datan and... Um, Yes, and the Datan who's about to make a, a, an earlier appearance way before the Korach story in Rashi's comment two and a half comments from now. So there, there, there's a lot of swirling stuff in this little scene connecting to Vayikra and connecting to Bamidbar, and it's fascinating. Right. So, so these things are, are all connecting. And if you didn't know, as I didn't know, when I first read the Rashi, my first question is, as Diane's was, this is a really strange story. Why is he doing this? But now I understand, no, he's not telling a strange, uh, he's, not, he's not making up a strange story. He's simply relating to things that he knew that we didn't know, or at least we had forgotten when we read Vayikra, or when we never read the, uh, the, the uh, Shemov Rabbah. Great. So let me use that as a segue, putting on hold for a second. We'll come back to you, Rick, Barry, and Norm to introduce the Vayikra verses that Larry's referring to. So I'm going to share the screen with you. One second. So if you don't have it in front of you, you can just look at the screen. Okay. So this is the 24th chapter of Vayikra. And yes, as you, you could be a every week shulgoer in a full Kriya congregation and and spend years just having no idea that these verses exist because it's a it's a miniature story. I think it's in Parshat Emor, like at the end of Parshat Emor. So Parshat Emor is filled, you know, with laws about the Kahuna in the beginning, and then all the laws of the holidays that we end up reading as as yuntiv readings. And then we have this miniature event. Look at verse ten. Vayetze ben isha Israelite. Now, when you're reading these words. Just look and, and, and think of some of the, um, the, the hints, the verb usages that connect the story we're in to this story. First of all, we have a vayetze, right? Bain isha Yisraelit, the son of an Israelite woman. 
He was the son of an Egyptian man. How do you end up being amongst one of the Israelites in the desert, the son of an Israel, Israelite woman, Egyptian man, the same way that a lot of Jews in the 21st century have Cossack blood in them, if I could be so direct, right? Rape, right? I don't think this is suggesting a romance. I, I, I mean, even without Rashi's comment here, I think the pshat of, 20, of tw- chapter 24 of Ayikra, verse 10, is that one of the freed Israelites is the offspring of a illicit and rape relationship between a Israelite woman and Egyptian man. So he came out um, uh, in the middle of the, of, of the camp. They fought in the camp. We haven't read the verse yet, but go back to your books. Look at, um, look at verse 13, two verses ahead. We'll get, we'll get there slowly in a bit. The second day, this is after Moshe smites the Egyptian. There were two Hebrew men quarreling. So we have a vayetze connecting these verses. We have the, a very uncommon verb, nits, to quarrel with one another in both verses. They, now back in, in, in the screen share that I'm giving to you, they quarreled in the camp. Between that um, half Israelite and another Israelite man. Vayikov, okay? this means to curse. Ben ha'isha ha'Yisraelit, the half blood, if I can just use that term, right? The 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 one who is the son of the Israelite woman and the Egyptian woman cursed God, took God's name in vain, cursed, engaged in blasphemy. Vayikalel, he cursed. Vayaviu oto el Moshe and brought him to Moshe, who's the primary Israelite in our scene. B'shem Imo, what was the name of his mother? Shlomit Batibri Lamatadan. The, the Shlomit, the daughter of Dibri, in, who is from the tribe of Dan. So what Rashi and the Midrashim are doing is, is, is connecting this story in Vayikra to our story using a couple of keys, using Vayetze, using Nitzim, using the, the, the rationale that, 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 these, that there can't just be random stories hanging out there. And let's also think about this woman's name. This woman, the one woman whose name that we know of, who gets raped by Egyptian man, is the peace is, is peacefulness, the daughter of speech, right? The two things that the Israelites don't have in slavery, right? I'm sure you, many of you know the, the set of Midrashim that's saying that one of the things that was in exile during slavery was speech itself, Pesach. Right, that's that no tree kun game on the word Pesach. Pesach obviously means Passover, but the rabbis read it as pe, the mouth. Sach finally got a chance to speak, like Sicha, that when they were liberated from Egypt, they could speak again because during slavery they they had no speech. So here is Shlomit, peacefulness. There's no peacefulness in slavery. The daughter of speech, Debris. There's no peace during slavery. She's the one who's raped by the Egyptian man. And, and 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 perhaps somewhat vindicated by Moshe in the scene we're about to read. And then her son, her son is the one who's caught up in this other scene in Vayikra with a Vayetze and a, and a Nitz and a, and a Moshe. So it's really very elegant and rabbit holy. And thanks to Rashi and the Midrashim, because I'll just say it in the first person, I could read the second chapter of Shemot 
and the 24th chapter of Ayikra 100 times in a row and not catch this. But they caught it, and he caught it, and delivers it to us. So let me let me get rid of that now. Um, what I want to do is, um, before we go to Rick, Nor- Rick, Norm, and Marshall, with based on what we what was just put into this into the conversation about um, the connection to Bayekra, any questions or comments on that? Because that's kind of a live thing, and then we'll go back to the others. Diane, Larry, do you want to like respond to that? Is that a new hand? No, I think I think we'll just let you go on and hear what other people have to say about it. And I eventually want to hear what you have to say about Datan. Okay, yeah, so we may or may not get to Datan today because Datan's going to come up on Rashi's comment in the Shnei Anashim Ivrim, the two Hebrew men in verse 13. So depending on how quickly we go. So <laughs> let's go Rick, Rick, Norm, Marshall, Judy. Matt's unmuted. I don't know if that means you want to say something, but you are unmuted. So I'm going to mute you until it's your time to talk. Uh, Rick. Hi, good morning. Nice haircut. Thank you. Um, well, I was going to ask, uh, is, is Rashi just, uh, trying to find a backstory for the, the story in Leviticus? Um, and I was going to link the Vayetzes, but you, uh, you did all that first. So great. Sorry. Um, yeah, but I could throw in the trope, Josh. Uh, so to me, um, when I hear Ish Mitzri in one place, I hear it in the other place. And um, it's the same Munach, Sakev Katon, um, on the Egyptian man. Um, I did want to bring up, though, the Egyptians aren't exactly always the bad guys, right? Uh, later on, we're supposed to treat them as equals because we used to live there. So um, um, the, the whole thing about whether he's, he, he swears or not and He's he's obviously not you know forgiven. I just wanted to ask about that a little bit. Is there anything about anti-Egyptian or pro-Egyptian thing here, or am I reading into it too much? In 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 which in which scene? Um, in the second one, where where uh, why bring up that he's the um, uh, 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 the son of an Egyptian when he's cursing? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it just seemed. It's a it detail you don't exactly need there to to have somebody struggling and, and still cursing, but I don't I, know. I didn't. I'll, I'm going to share the screen one more time because I left out um, by accident an, an, another evocative verse from that scene. So what happens after Shlomit Bati Bri's uh, half Jewish, half Egyptian uh, bastard son curses God? They imprisoned him. I would say they re-imprisoned him. They put him back behind bars, right? They, they, they put him back in Egypt. Until God made up God's mind as to what to do with him. And then we never really, um, um, we, 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 we imagine him once again being, not re-enslaved, but re-imprisoned. By the bear more, God said to Moses, saying, Take this cursor, this cursor who's had a pretty terrible life. All those who heard what he said should place their hands al rosho on his head, and they stone him to death. So, in this scene, in some ways, God, who took the Israelites out of Egypt from under the hands of the taskmasters, turns the Israelites into a version of taskmasters, killing the guy 
who was the offspring of the worst individual scene of enslavement that the Torah shows. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's a, I don't know if it's ironic or if it's, um, if it's a, um, I don't know exactly what the right word to use is, but it, it is so interwoven that the Israelites turn into the taskmaster, as it were, of the offspring of the rape between the taskmaster and the and Shlomit Batibri, all happening um, uh, across two books of the Torah. And then from there, there it turns into halacha. So the, the, the verse goes on and we find out, yes, if you curse God's name, you're going to be executed. But it comes in through that story. Um, okay. Uh, Norm. Oh, a lot of hands. Wonderful. Norm. Marshall, Judy, Tova, Barry. I think both the story in Vayikra and the story that Rashi tells us from the Midrash in Shmos, um, both tie to the fact that the particular beating he was given was extraordinary. It was not the ordinary kind of oppression that we saw um, or that Moses would have seen um, in his travels in the community, that this was extraordinary and caught Moses' attention whether or not um, the heavens gave him this understanding and ability to read minds or, or understand what had happened in secret in the past that morning. Um, yeah. This was extraordinary and unusual and roused him up for that reason. Um, Go ahead, Rachel. The, <clears throat> the story <clears throat> in Vayikra that you just mentioned, I'm really torn the scene of putting hands on the head and then stoning it's such an extreme of human emotion Mm. here you physically reach out and touch this other person and then stone him it's it's a really impossible I'm thinking almost that the act of touching the person would make it that much more difficult to execute the person. Your comment makes me think of something, Rachel, I hadn't thought before, and that is how the scene in which this person who's about to be stoned is conceived is both um, oppressive and intimate. Right, that, that the waking up in the middle of the night, the coming into the bed, and then the rape, right? And then the way by, and, and then he is executed by a, an approach, a close intimacy, and then the violence. And I had not, and I had not picked up on that parallel either. So that's, that's very rich. Norm, going back to your comment, there's really so much that we could linger on in just what you said. Which, which forget about which is the right way to read the scene, because we don't, never know. Which is the, the richer way to read the scene that it is this act was so uncommon. And so, you know, may, may ever like rule. So beyond the, the border that that is what caught Moshe's attention and woke him from his slumber or this was happening every day. Moshe just happened to be out this day and saw it and heard about it. Right. So it, like, do we, do we, would we rather, would we rather posit a Moshe who, once he saw that the depravity was at this level, that's what turned him into being able to see um, what th- these people has is Echav, or that um, 
this kind of thing was prevalent and Moshe just hadn't, as Barry had referenced before, had never come out, had never come out to see the people who were actually his achim. So it's a, it's a question to just hang out there. Uh, but your comment made me think about that. Uh, Marshall, Judy, Tova, and Diane, Larry, and Barry. Marshall, Bakasha. Yeah, I was just fascinated by Rashi's, the progression of the verbs, ma'amidam, to get, got them up to, onto their feet. They were lying down in bed. He got them up to their feet, indicating almost like a, get, get, get up, you know, forcing you to get up. And then what happens, the natan enav, literally he gives his eyes. But according to Morphix, natan enav can also mean he noticed or he desired, and also he coveted her. Yeah. And what happened after that? Uva alishto. And this is not uh, uh, contemporary Hebrew. This is ba, bia, is to have sexual relations. Mm-hmm. Not really he comes to the, his wife, but he actually had relations. And then the selection you had from uh, Bayikra, what was the result of that? Here's a child being born. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Marshall. Uh, Judy, Booker Tov. Booker Tov, Rabbi Booker Or. Uh, first of all, very quickly to Sharon, who's around there somewhere. It is so good to see you, Sharon. And thank you for um, getting a haircut. And perhaps you can be Rabbi Our Vanguard in uh, our now all following suit and getting haircuts after six months. Um, This fascinates me. It is the first time I have heard of or observed this unbelievable connection between here in Shmot and in Vayikra. And I'm wondering what your take is, Rabbi, on how some words in Hebrew are consonants where it can mean one thing, but also the opposite. We know a lot of women are not named in the Chumash. And here Shulamit is, and I can't help but think it is, and, and related to what Rachel was saying, how unbelievably heartbreaking to come in intimately, like we are here on Zoom, and then to create this horrible act, that the name, I wonder, it might mean that we grow into peacefulness, but it might mean that tragically it's something she would never be able to attain mm. because she was born out of tragedy and her son dies in tragedy. Yeah. We, we don't know if she was born out of tragedy. She, she conceives her son in tragedy. Oh, oh. Right. That's what That's I mean. Yes. Right. So, so are we supposed to understand her name as like painfully ironic the thing yeah. that she, the, the thing that she, the thing that she the, th- the thing and the things that she lacked. What, what she we what we do for, yeah she yearns for yeah. What we do know because we know how the Torah names people is that it, it, that this is not you know the the Talmudic notion of Ploni Ben Almoni like you know an, you know anonymous you know what's what's the um what's the phrase when when, when there's an anonymous body uh um. In English, the name you give, um, I'm having a brain cramp, but like when John when Doe, John Doe, thank you. This is not John Doe. 
Shlomit Batibri is an intentional name, right? So what is the intention? That's for us to explore. But it's it's definitely hanging out there for us to ask those questions. And maybe that's also, since, since in the story in Vayikra, which I believe is the first time that her name appears in the Torah, right? Remember that we're inserting her into the story in Shemot. Her name does not appear here. No. Maybe it's the fact that when Shlomit Batibri appears in Vayikra, without any context, the rabbis are like, oh, that name has to mean something. Wait, wait, that name has to mean something. And Ishmitsri and and Vayetze and oh, I got it. Yes, yeah. Right? That it's that it's it's a it's a back engineering into our story. Because yes. it couldn't be that it was just uh, a random woman um, with that name without there being a backstory. Tova, Diane Larry, Barry Norm. Um, one of the things that's really striking me in linking these two readings is it opens up in a way that doesn't always happen, something really profoundly human, profoundly painful, because we have three that strike me. We have Shlomit's experience. She has been deceptively raped in this horrible way. She's had to bear a child that was a product of rape, which, as you alluded to, is an experience that many women historically have had to deal with. And the child has become part of that community. She must obviously have felt some degree of intimacy and love for him. And now she's going to see him dying by a judgment of that community, cursing God's name. Right. So that's profoundly painful. Then you have the child himself, this half-blood, this half-breed, and you have the question of, was the curse just that burst of anger, or is it expressing his own dilemma with being his father's a rapist, and yet that's caused him to be born into a slave people, that dilemma. And then there's Moshe, because if we're going to buy this whole connection, he had to know who this was. This was the child that was born as a result of the action he took defending and avenging the rape. Great. Right. So think think about Moshe's role in carrying out God's rather vicious response to maybe the character in the Torah who's most justified in cursing God. Right? If there's any character who we could say, you know what, give give him a pass. It's the son of Shlomid Badibri. And then Moshe has to carry it out. Uh, fascinating. Thank you, Tova. Uh, Larry, Diane, Barry, Norm. I actually posted my comment. Just I, I don't want anyone to get mad at me um, and cancel me. Uh, but the, the the midrash doesn't talk about rape. At least not, not explicitly. It clearly is rape. But it's looking at it from the lens of adultery. And she's not guilty. Shlomi's not guilty of adultery only because she told her husband. He asked her, "Did he touch you?" She said, yes, but I thought it was you. So that makes it not adultery. So she is not liable for the death penalty. But it makes it very clear also that when Moses saw this and looked at him, looked this way and that, he was seeing through the Ruach HaKodesh what had happened. And he knew surely he deserves death because adultery is one of the uh, things that, that, that you die for along with blasphemy. Those are the, the, these two things. And this whole story, I'm thinking now, was written in order to justify why it was that Moses 
killed this taskmaster as opposed to simply beat him or hit him. Yeah. And your, that explanation that you brought out from the Midrash as to why Moshe felt justified in killing him, I think is a far more palatable explanation than the one that Rashi is actually going to deliver. Because remember, Rashi doesn't, doesn't just give over the one Midrash. He's, 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 he's culling through many and then delivering his answer. His answer for why Moshe felt comfortable killing this man, I find to be extremely unpalatable. We'll get there either in a few minutes or next week. Uh, Barry? Well, it just, this has all been fascinating discussion. Just throw throw some cold water on it. Um, Possible way of throwing cold water. Uh, So the Vyetse, this is the first time he went out. He's never seen his the Evies before, and he doesn't know any of this backstory. And he just sees uh, somebody being beaten, and reacts the way he did. So I just, just throwing some cold water on this thing. There's no rabbit hole. We just straight over the hole and didn't go down. Um, the, the other is I'm, I'm curious uh, that there's a pattern uh, both with with Jacob and and his his first wife um, and um, and here. In intimacy and at night, somehow the, the the person doesn't know who the other body is. It, it, it's just uh, it's a, a strange um, um, lack of of uh, sensation in the, the both stories. Yes, yes. I don't think that's throwing cold water on it. I think it's a reminder that in our enjoyable, delicious investigation into the possibilities of the text, we can also kind of come up to the surface to say, yeah, but, but what, what, what do the words actually mean? Right? And, and, and maybe there's a simpler way of reading it. Right. And that's all right. That I was listening to a shiur by one of my favorite teachers yesterday, Micha Goodman from the Hartman Institute, who talked about um, the difference between pshat and drash. And he, he recorded, you remember when he was in yeshiva, they would joke about it says like, like, um, like, what, what I think the verse text, what I think the verse means is pshat. What you think the verse means, oh, that's drash, right? Like, like I, I reading it right, yeah, that's a nice midrash. That, that's how they would play around in chavrut around the table. It sounds better in Hebrew, right? um, but yeah, like, I, I think I have pshat. Uh, you have an interesting interpretation that's drash, right? So it's a reminder that as Rashi, we've said this 150 times, but it's worth repeating it, as he delivers midrashic material and offers it to us essentially as pshat, except when he tells us this is a midrashic explanation, it doesn't steal from us the, pos- the possibility or maybe even the obligation to, de- 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 to derive our own pshat for what we think the verses actually mean, right? Rashi didn't have the Rashi and Rashi wasn't God. And the verses have their own power in the, beyond the midrashic weaving. And remember, in, in the rabbinic understanding of it, uh, drash is just one layer anyway, right? I think some of you know the 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 um, acronym pardes. Pardes means the the orchard. It also is, is the Greek word from which we get paradise. Um, it's the sense of like wandering in thought as you're investigating Torah and the world. And the rabbis understood that to be an acronym for the four layers in which um, the Torah is plumbed: pei pshat, resh remez hint. Drash, drash, and then samech sod, the secretive, the, the ones that most of us could never possibly begin to understand. One of them is pshat. What do the words mean? And that's all we need. Um, and by the way, uh, Nechama Leibovitz, who was one of the 20th century's greatest uh, Torah scholars and one of the first 
women to make a name for herself as a Torah scholar, she was really a, 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 a Pashtanit, but nothing simple about it. She just wanted to figure out what do the words mean and what are we supposed to learn from them, even though she knew all the Midrashic material. Um, okay, Norm and then Sue. I think that the fact that we don't read any place else of somebody with an Egyptian father and an Israelite mother um, helps lend the idea that this was a relatively unique occurrence, that the beating was relatively unique, and that's why Moshe did this once, um, (coughs) that this was a very unusual circumstance, what this Egyptian man did to Shlomi or to whomever. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, a plausible read for sure. Sue, your last hand up in this grouping. Oh, um, I, I mean, I just want to say what I think is probably kind of obvious, but what we're taught from the time that we're kids and every Pesach and every everything is that Moshe went out and he hit the taskmaster and, he, and then he got in trouble and he had to run. Um, and um, the, rich, the richness of adding some story to that is uh, it's fantastic. Never, never considered it ever. That there was something much that that there's a potential that there's something much more layered and subtle and, and complicated about that whole thing, um, um, because really that's the story we we teach always. And I forgot who was it Tova or Rachel who said this. I'm losing track, but the the image of Moshe smiting the man who is the father of the person that Moshe is going to oversee his execution later on in the desert after he's freed from slavery. It's it's uh it's it's so rich. Okay, um, we're at nine twenty eight. So we could just let's let's read the next verse just so we can have a running start for next week. Um, Sue, since you're unmuted or you had been muted, why don't you just read verse twelve for us? Okay, verse twelve is where's verse twelve? It's over here. Vayifen. Mm-hmm. Okay, Vayifen ko. Um, and he and he turned this way and that. We talked about that. Right, just pause for a second. That. The reason why one of them is ko and one of them is cho, it's like mi kamocha, mi kamocha. That kaf is one of the six beged le- kefet letters. When it's the beginning of a word, it gets a dagesh. Yeah. But since the second word has a vav in front of it, the kaf is no longer the beginning of the word, so the dagesh drops out. It's the same word. It's just one is ko and then one is va cho. Okay. Is that something that's used in Hebrew now? Like, would you say, you know, tistakel ko vcho? No. Does anyone know? Are you asking the? Are the words used, or are you asking that is that is the dagesh in the kaf come out if you use them? I'm asking in modern Hebrew if you use that expression, would everyone look at you funny? I don't know. It might be kind of an Ivrit Shel Shabbat kind of a thing, right? The okay. like kind of Hebrew Shabbat table. Don't know. I like the sound of Kovacho. Okay. Vayifin um, Kovacho, and he turned this way and that, and he saw that he ain't ish that that there was no one that there was no one around. 
Vayach et Hamitri, and he smote the Egyptian. Right, and your instinct to translate Vayach et smote, which is correct, shows us why Rashi has to work hard to tell us that the Makeh, Makeh is the same root as Vayach, right? Um, it's just in a different form, that the Makeh of the previous verse is, he didn't smite him, he just toyed with him and repressed him because normally that root does mean to smite him. And here he clearly did smite him. Okay. And he hid him in the sand. Right. Taman. Tet, tet memnun is one of the roots uh, to mean to hide or to conceal. Um, we'll just leave it kind of here and just notice that that phrase Vayarki ain ish is another um, evocative and delicious phrase. He saw there was no man. There's a better way of saying he saw that nobody was around and therefore he could do it surreptitiously. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says that Moshe saw there was no man. What does that mean? There was a man. In fact, there was a man who was introduced to us as a man. Ish Mitzri. There is a man. So the, the Torah's use of Moshe saying that he saw that there was no Ish when the word Ish is one of the light words of this phrase and by the uh, of this section and one of the light words of this section in Vayikra, right? What does it mean to say that he, that Moshe saw there was no ish? You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.